Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to a chilling episode that takes you to the zenith of horror as we take a look at The Shining. From Stephen King's isolated inspiration to write a horror novel about a family staying the winter in a hotel where they are all alone and not alone. With a father who convenes with spirits, a son who's always reading, minds, and a mother who thinks her husband belongs in the kitchen. Not, not in a cannibal way. In the story, she locks her husband in the pantry. Listen further as we examine the massive 1980 movie by Stanley Kubrick as well as the more book-faithful miniseries that came out 17 years later. So, hang a Do Not Disturb sign, kill your radio, and have a bowl of ice cream as we present Boys and Ghouls Episode 60, all about The Shining. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing but dead folks. I want to kill you. Have you ever talked to a corpse? Satan is our pal. It's boring. Throw the third switch! Look! The third switch give my creation life! <laughs> That's great. Okay. Because in the book, when he's locked in the pantry, he eats Triscuits. I already had the Triscuits, but I was like, well, if we have a snack, I'll break out the Triscuits. That's funny. He's got a whole set. He's got like Oreos and like and like peanut butter and stuff. And then you know Homer, he's got like the whole buffet. Yeah. In there, he's like, can't talk eating. <laughs> he's like, come kill your family. No. <laughs> uh, but in the book, it's not just like, well, it's silver lining. At least I'm in here with all this food. Better empty out that coffee can. I'm gonna need that soon enough. <laughs> she really could have thrown in a can opener if she was really planning on keeping him there a long time. But yeah. he did have access to a plenty of snack food but in the book he doesn't even want the food he's hung over from ghost whiskey yeah and he's like forcing the triscuits down because he's going to need his energy as he teaches his family a lesson gotta make him take their medicine with not an axe but a croquet mallet mm-hmm. very different very different not as final then that's how Howron lives yep uh, with a broken jaw instead of an axe in the chest yep used to call cabin fever. 
claustrophobic reaction which can occur when people are shut in together over long periods of time. Marshall. Cat. My brain is so full of stuff right now. It mine's just mush. And I had mine too. And I had to remind myself today, like almost out loud, and I've had to do this before with certain topics, that I'm not showing up tonight to record a podcast all by myself. That I have you here with me, that we're doing this together because yeah, I, I was, was feeling very overwhelmed. And I was like, you. yes, I was like, Catherine, calm yourself. Marshall will have wonderful insights, additional information, thoughts about what you have to say. Like, you're not in this alone because The Shining is such an overwhelming topic. So much so that we were going to do this in like January, back when it was cold, because we were like, Shining snow, snow January, perfect. And then that didn't happen. We both got cold feet. Ba-boom. For a couple of months. And then we were going to do February, and we were like, why did we pick the shortest month? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need a, a month with 31 days to fit all of this in. And meanwhile, I'm just like slowly pecking away. Me too. At the book, the miniseries, and the Kubrick film. Yeah. All large things. Yes. And I, I, I mention it in that order because... That's the order. I like. I wouldn't watch the miniseries until I finished the book, and I wouldn't watch the Kubrick until I finished the miniseries. Even though the Kubrick came out seventeen years. I'm guessing before. it's because you know that the miniseries followed the book more closely, so you wanted to kind of lump those together. Yeah, yeah, really. That makes sense. And I already had seen The Shining. Oh, the many 1980, times. 1980, The yeah. Shining, a few times over the years. Sure. So I was first getting to what I'd never done before, which is I'd never read the book before. Mm -hmm. You had? You hadn't. No. Wow. I did not reread it for this podcast, but I knew that you were going to be doing it more. So I figured if there was anything I forgot, you'd help me there. But I did read it fairly recently, but it was the very first time I'd read it. See, typically the book version of any movie is a more dense experience. Mm -hmm. And the Kubrick film is pretty dense. It is. So the idea of getting denser always um, daunted me. Sure. And I, so as a result, I'd never read the book until I decided to do a podcast episode on it. So... It's as good an excuse as any. Uh, how many pages? 505. I think that's about average for a King novel. Really? I, I'm Yeah, I mean, I'm chipping away for a second time at Wizard and Glass, which is like 720 pages. Okay, true. Yeah. I'm not diminishing the fact that this is a big novel, but... Well... You know, in fact, I think... In my mind, I was thinking, well, it's not that big a book, but I think I read The Shining right after I read It for the first time. So after so reading an 1,100-page book, knocking it down to 500 felt like... Walk in the park. Yeah. Yeah. I will notice this as we get things going on The Shining. We, through no plan, have covered in episodes Stephen King's books... In the order they were released. So first we did Carrie. Oh, wow. Right? But the reason we did Carrie when we did Carrie was because it was September. Yeah, back right? to school. So it was back to school. Yeah. So like, what's in a school? What's in a high school? Carrie. Yes. And then a year later, it was another September episode. But that was more about like fall and foliage and what spells autumn to us. And Salem's Lot, the book, is Salem's super Lot. duper autumnal. Fall, New England, New England, Salem's Lot. So we did... Salem's Lot, which was Stephen King's second book. And then it's winter and we're still thinking seasonally. 
You're blowing like, my mind right now. Snow, The Shining. Though we've unintentionally gone in order. Yes. That's cool. Well, obviously, I mean, some people can be put off by the idea of staying alone in a place where something like that actually happened. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. And uh, as far as my wife is concerned, uh, I'm sure she'll be absolutely fascinated when I tell her about it. She's a uh, confirmed ghost story and horror film addict. <laughs> There are a few things in the book that provide really interesting imagery in the Kubrick film, but which aren't really explained in the Kubrick film. So reading the book does give you that background on a few things, like the yeah. fellatio guy in the in the bear suit or dog suit. Dog it, suit. That stuff. Well, I now know dog suit. Yeah. Because you read the book. Yeah. But that, that is just also, an image in the Kubrick film, but then you understand from the book that, like, Horace Derwent, who, like... I mean, this is the me trying to recall, but right. He had like a, he had a lover, lover and you make him dress up like a dog and just a just part of their sex just, play. Yeah. But just like for sport, like public sport uh -huh. at this like costume ball. And, you know, he's like, you come as a dog. Yeah. I'm glad in the book it says it's a guy just because it occurred to me at some point. Why does everybody assume it's a dude? Could just be a very large woman. It never occurred to me. I always assumed it was a dude. Well, in the book, it is a dude. Right. So we know it's not just a very large woman <laughs> in a large dog outfit. So we should say the By book. By the way, uh -huh. and that doesn't have much to do with much. I know it's now the second thing we've talked about. That's just one of the disturbing images that come about when, in the Kubrick film, the character of Wendy finally gets a taste of the paranormal. Unlike in the book, unlike the miniseries. And the miniseries very much follows the book. Mm-hmm. Wendy is basically in, still a horror movie, definitely. She's in danger, but she's not in a paranormal horror movie. She doesn't know she is. Right. Until very late in the game. Very, very late. You know, meanwhile, Danny's seeing visions. He's psychic. Jack is talking to ghosts. She's just been dealing with an ailing son and a husband who's losing his mind and getting more dangerous. Mm -hmm. And it's not until somehow, ghosts, her husband gets out of the pantry that she locked him in. He's got her in the bathroom and he's like knocking on the door and then help arrives in the form of Hallerham. And so he leaves to go deal with him. And then she's walking around the hotel. And only then after getting chased with an ax, knock down one door, Wendy, I'm home, knock down the bathroom door. Here's Johnny. Then she goes back into the hallway. Then she starts seeing ghosts. Mm -hmm. That is really late in the game. It is. For a movie with basically a three movie people. where the rest of us all know we know we're watching ghosts. it. We know there's some crazy stuff going on. Come and play with us. Come and play with us, Danny. You want to give us the briefest of about, summaries? We'll have an overlook. That's not even a term. No, it not is now. an overview of, of Let's the story. Let's not overlook the opportunity to provide a short synopsis of the story. Well, I think you just won that round. So, <laughs> so why don't you give me a synopsis? Um, there is a man named Jack Torrance. He is kind of on his last chance. He was a drunk and he heard his son in a kind of a drunken, angry rage, broke or pulled his arm out of the socket, depending on the 
version. And then after he got sober, he beat up a student of his for slashing his tires and lost his job. And so now he's gotten this one opportunity from like an old drinking buddy who's now sober, which is I put in a good word for you. You can be the caretaker over the winter at this hotel in Colorado. And this is your ticket. And he's like, great. I can write this play I've been working on. I, it would be the perfect opportunity to just get it done. Wife and kid can come, get away from distractions. This will be great. They show up at the hotel, and over the course of the time that they're there... His kid very, has oh, yes. psychic powers. Yeah. His little kid, Danny. Who, in the movie, they really don't know much about. In the book, they're starting to accept it as just kind of a fact of life that Danny seems to know things. Mm-hmm. Things that he really has no business knowing. Right. You know, there's no way he could have known. From Go, really, at least in the miniseries, the mom is like, did your dad get the job? And Danny just kind of reflects on it with his powers for a second. He's like, yeah. He got the job. He's heading back now. Boy, we must really be high up. The air feels so different. Mm-hmm. And so Jack with his wife, Wendy, and his son, Danny, who has the shine, as they come to call it, are at the Overlook Hotel and this bad things start happening. isolated hotel yes. in Colorado, which four months of the year gets snowed in, basically, and they need someone there to just like keep it from falling apart in the winter. Keep it going. Keep it heated, which is more important in the book Yep. because there's a big boiler. The boiler is only mentioned one time in the movie. Yeah. But in the book, it is, like, very important. Yeah. And things start to fall apart, metaphorically. Um, Jack starts seeing things. Danny starts seeing things. And the, the forces at work in the hotel, through in different versions, kind of have different goals. But in the book, yeah. at least, they're really after Danny because he's got this incredibly strong ability. They um, seem to, without saying so, even in the book, are using the American Horror Story approach which is like if you die here then your ghost will be here yeah i think that's safe to say because their end game is the death of the boy and somehow that will give the hotel whatever if it's the building itself or something within the hotel you know doc when something happens it can leave a trace of itself behind say like if someone burns toast Well, maybe things that happen leave other kind of traces behind. Not things that anyone can notice, but things that people who shine can see. That's what it always felt like to me, which was that the Overlook wasn't itself inherently evil, but like enough had accumulated Mm -hmm. there over time. I've heard it related to being somewhat like the Marston House in... Salem's Lot, which we talked about, about it being a place that just kind of collects bad energy. And it's not that the house is evil, it's that the space it occupies has been churning and churning and gathering and bad stuff just continues to happen there. And for people who need an explanation, there is like a quick line that says, you know, it was actually built on an ancient Indian burial ground. That's just in the movie, right? In the Kubrick film? I believe that's just in the movie. I don't think they say that in the book, but yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of things happen right here in this particular hotel over the years. And not all of them was good. And so by the end of the story, in the book, Danny and Wendy, along with Halloran, escape. Halloran is the cook Mm -hmm. who also 
has The Shining. He does. And he explains to us, the audience, and to Danny that there's more people than just him who has this gift. Right. And they escape while, through a chain of events, Jack blows up the hotel. And then... Well, that's what I've been told. Mm-hmm. That's one of the differences I knew. In the miniseries, he finds out that no one's dumped the boiler. Yeah. In the last couple of days. He hasn't. He, he's well, the one who's supposed to. Yeah, he's the one who's supposed to. So now, like, the needle's in the red. In the book, although he does get a moment of clarity before the hotel takes him for good to tell Danny to run. So that's good old Jack. That's Jack the dad before just being completely taken over. And he goes down to try to, to, to stop it from blowing up, but it doesn't work. Mm, okay. But in the miniseries, which very much follows the book, mm-hmm. in that one, he's got like the ghosts over his shoulder and they're like, they're like, do it, do it, Jack, turn it off, do it. you gotta save the hotel. And he's like, I don't think I will. Boom, the hotel blows up. And but it, it comes to the same end. Right. While in the Kubrick version, Danny kind of tricks Jack, who's chasing him around the hedge maze, and Jack ends up freezing to death mm-hmm. and dying. And Danny and Wendy and Halloran get away in the snowcat. Well, no, in the movie, Halloran is dead. Oh shit! I was I just watched the miniseries, yes. and I think I'm just wishing that Halloran didn't die. He doesn't almost, die in the book either. Almost comically in the Kubrick version, he goes through so much to get there, and then like the minute he arrives, he's dead. Yeah, it's very sad. One of the few deaths in a long horror film. Right. All right, Looney, show me what you got. Is that the best you can do? Oh my. I would like to talk about the book and Stephen King's inspiration for the book. Go. Go. Well, hold on. Uh, We got this here from Denver, a postcard that says it's from Rob Walker, a fan. Yes. A friend. Marshall and Kat, just want to thank you uh, for your boys and ghouls. Your longtime fan in Colorado, home of The Shining. (laughs) He's the coolest. And this comes from the Stanley Hotel. The location for the miniseries... The Shining. That's a really spooky, ominous picture. So not only did the miniseries film there, but the hotel is also credited as being the inspiration in the first place because having found a bit of success as a writer, Stephen King had never really had a, a vacation with his wife and never really like gotten away. I have a good little bit here about that. Oh. If you want. Okay. Yeah. Take it. So the book was published in January 28th, 1977. After writing Carrie and Salem's Lot, which are both set in small towns in Maine, which is his native state, Stephen King was looking for a change of pace for the next book. Quote, I wanted to spend a year away from Maine so that my next novel would have a different sort of background. King opened an atlas of the United States on the kitchen table and randomly pointed to a location which turned out to be Boulder, Colorado. Which also shows up in the stand. Oh, yes, indeed. Okay. On October 30th, 1974... Steve and his wife, Tabitha, checked into the Stanley Hotel. Well, this is the part I know a bit about, which is they had uh, Tabitha's sister with them. They had the kids in tow. Oh, I didn't realize that. And the sister is like, listen, I'll watch the kids. You guys just get out and go somewhere. Have fun, you two. Were the sister and the kids at the Stanley no. as well? No, oh, like, okay. Like they were in Boulder. Oh, how funny. Steve so they scooted Tabitha, away just to have a little time to themselves. Yeah, just got in a car and just started driving. And Cute. then he passes a, a sign that says like, these roads will not be plowed after this date. And he thought that was kind of ominous. Um, you don't see that in the city. Mm. And then they just found the Stanley. Which is in Estes Park, Colorado. So right, adjacent, Boulder adjacent. 
And they just found this old hotel, a big old hotel, and showed up on what was the equivalent of closing day in the book. They were the only two guests in the hotel that night. They had to pay cash because all of their credit card receipts had already been sent to like the credit card company. Mm-hmm. And while there, he saw giggling nuns. Which he said made him feel like God was leaving the building, like they were leaving that day. Wow. That was something I read. And so also what I think is interesting, apparently two years prior in 1972, he had started a novel entitled Dark Shine, which was supposed to be about a psychic boy in a psychic amusement park. Mm. Mm. But the idea never came to fruition and he abandoned the book. But during the night at the Stanley, the story came back to him. It's all forgotten now. We're happy once again. Now travel down beyond recall. King and Tabitha had dinner that evening in the grand dining room totally alone. They were the only two guests. Except for the band. Well, it says here there was taped orchestral music. Oh, I, I, he tells this story on the commentary of the miniseries. Oh, so maybe I'm getting some of the details wrong. He said that like they were contracted, you know, if anybody's there. Oh, that's funny. And I like that better. This is also, you know, a 35-year-old story. So. Right. Uh, okay, you just perked up. When I was like, let's talk about alcoholism. Well, I just like that you were like, I was, we were talking about how to structure this podcast and go like, well, how do we attack, tackle this? And you were like, let's talk about elements and then like how they are, how they appear in all the iterations. And I was like, oh, cool. And you were like, let's, I don't know, let's start with alcoholism. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not the lightest thing to start with. I just like that you were just like, no, we're going to lean into it. Yeah, because I mean, a big difference between the book and the movie that hits you right away is you get an internal monologue of Torrance. Doesn't the book open with his meeting with Ullman? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, what's he, what he's thinking about him. It could be just in the first sentence. Yeah. Jack was thinking this. Yeah. And he doesn't like him, right? No, he doesn't. The meeting goes very differently in the Kubrick version. I feel like this... I remember him having a huge, like, authority issue. Like, yep. right? In yeah. the book. Like, which, to your point, you get this inner monologue that is so valuable for that. Yeah, he doesn't like being told what to do. Even then when he's in the middle of nowhere with almost no one to tell him what to do, (laughs) he's still just railing against authority figures. And a lot of the story is his sobriety. And he's been sober for several months when we first meet him. And then he's going to go into an environment where there's no alcohol, which Mm. is the Overlook Hotel. Yeah, There's no alcohol there. So it's a forced sobriety at that point. So if we can see him drinking, well, that's one thing. But to watch someone not drink, what does that look like? Mm. So a lot depends on his internal monologue. His every other thought is like, man, I wish I had a beer. Or comparing the situation to like, maybe I won't do this because this will just lead me back to drink. For a while, a big difference between the book and the movie is... That they have a continued access to the nearest town. And he could always just cut out and go to a bar there, but he doesn't. And part of destroying the snowmobile, when he does it in the book, his rationale at the time is, this will keep me from hopping on the snowmobile and going into town and drinking. Oh, I didn't remember that. How interesting. Yeah. And he also destroys the radio by accident. He just sort of wakes up and finds himself having smashed it. 
Yeah. In the miniseries, also written by Stephen King, by the way, we should say. Yes. Written by Stephen King and (laughs) filmed in the actual Stanley Hotel that this postcard is from. Mm -hmm. Aired in 1997. Aired in 97. Miguel Ferrer, recently deceased, Mm. who was also in The Stand, directed by the same guy. McGarris. McGarris. Mm -hmm. He does a cameo where he can hear his father's voice. That's Miguel Ferrer's voice? It's Miguel Ferrer's voice. Wow. Physically, if you read the book, you're picturing like Brian Dennehy. Because he was just like a big big Irish guy. Yeah. Who was like an abusive alcoholic, so. And he hears his voice a lot in the book, right? In his head? Well, he certainly thinks about him a lot. Thinks about him a lot, yeah. So, yeah, in the miniseries, he comes through over. And he's actually reading an AA book, which is another difference because King says that he had never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous at the time that it was either like, That Stephen King hadn't? That Stephen King hadn't, yeah. Wow, that's kind of surprising. Yeah. I mean, AA started in the 30s. I suspect it had entered his realm of reality. Me too. Let's just say that he didn't see it as an option for him. He wasn't like, I'm not that kind of a a drunk. Yeah. You know, so for him... Denial is a big part of it (laughs) for a long time. He put it all on himself to stop. I should just be able to do this. Yeah, I can remember a time when I didn't drink. I'll just act like that. <laughs> so there is no AA or mention of it in the book, but it is in the miniseries. Yeah. So it's, you know, Stephen King also having had over a decade to sort of think things through and add things mm-hmm. that, you know, he feels should be in there. And I think in 1997, 20 years after the book came out, AA was certainly even more ubiquitous than it was and more accepted, I guess. But I do think I really, just speaking of the alcoholism in general and the and the struggle with drink in the book and in the miniseries, there's this gap there in the Kubrick film where I think it's a big part of us not really seeing Jack... A sympathetic character. You know, he's just this, which is obvious. He's this cuckoo, like, he's Jack Nicholson. So he's... Yeah. By the way, since they're both named Jack, yes. we will from time to time just have to say Nicholson, Nicholson or yeah. Torrance. Yes. So I think Torrance, I think Jack Torrance, you know, in the book, you have this internal monologue of him thinking about ways to prevent himself from drinking. It's obviously very important to him to earn his family back in the way that he once had it and to be worthy of all that, even though he kind of has this authority problem and doesn't like being told what to do. You feel this push and this pull and he's a sympathetic character. They really try to portray that in the miniseries as well. But in the Kubrick version, I mean, he's just like, I don't drink. I'm not drinking anymore. That's what you say at a job interview. Well, of course, but you don't get that kind of like, you don't get a heart to heart between him and Wendy where he's like, you know, I really love you guys. I mean, it's, he's got a swagger and he's got an arrogance and he seems off the rails all the time. There's no moment where you see Jack Nicholson vulnerable in that way, really. said it's going to snow tonight. What do you want me to do about it? In the book, he's working on a play. Then he stops working on the play as he becomes more and more obsessed with the Overlook. And the Overlook is like taking him over. It leaves a scrapbook for him to find about all these crazy things that happened at the Overlook Hotel. 
And he's like, I'm going to write a book about the Overlook. So this is me saying that because the Overlook wants Danny, because he's got the shine, they're going to get to him through his father, who's a writer. So what do they do? They leave behind some juicy writing material for him to that find. That he can't resist. That he can't resist. And it just pulls him into the Overlook and like ties him with it. Until it both comes to the same end of both in, in the Kubrick and in and, and other forms. A great importance is placed on that I'm the caretaker. I have a responsibility to this hotel. And to the... I signed a contract. Yeah. He's not just rationalizing his behavior. He believes that this is like the most important thing mm-hmm. for him to be doing mm-hmm. is to be at the service of the hotel. And even in the miniseries, which Stephen King wrote, there's that moment where Derwent, the very well-spoken gentleman who's talking to Jack, and he's like... Uh, He was one of the former owners. Yes. He's the one who has the boyfriend, puppy dog, slave guy, whatever. And he's very dapper. And he was like one of my favorite moments of the miniseries, and there weren't too many shining lights. But he says to... Torrance, your wife and child want to see you working a selling clothes or a gas station. They want to see you in a a job like that at a car wash. Just appealing to that sense of pride, of masculine pride, of like, I won't be degraded in that way. I will earn the badge of honor that comes with finishing this damn job that I signed on for and moving forward to the next great thing I'm going to do. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. And in the Kubrick film, it mostly just seems to be about a frustrated writer who, you know, he's like trying to think of something to write. There's like long scenes of him. Throwing a ball against a wall, which was uh, Nicholson's idea. Right. Wasn't it just Kubrick was like, you're not writing. Yeah. It said, you're not writing. And it's like, well, then what am I doing? And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, what would you be doing? So while there is the push pull that we get to see more out of Stephen Weber in the miniseries as Jack Torrance, we know that from whenever we see Nicholson typing, he's already crazy. (laughs) We've already seen him having a vision when he's looking at the model of the hedge maze. We've seen him looking out of the top of his eyes, which is Kubrick speak for gone crazy. (laughs) Because we get one of the greatest additions that the movie did that was not in the book, which is when Wendy is looking for looking for Jack. At this point, I think, you know, she was carrying the baseball bat. I think she still thinks that there's someone else in the hotel Mm -hmm. because Danny reports being attacked. Danny's got bruises and yeah. Yeah, because he went into room 237. Mm Mm-hmm. At that point, I think the bat was for this mysterious woman. It wasn't for Jack. Yeah. Until she finds the manuscript, and it's all, all work and no play make Jack at old what boy. What a reveal. All work and no play make Jack at old boy. I'm going to step away from this, this great scene for a second to talk about uh, me. That I started eighth grade with a Batman t-shirt because the movie Batman had come out the year before and I had several Batman t-shirts and I certainly responded to so much about it including Jack Nicholson's The Joker. I was several years out from seeing The Shining but then one day while down the shore I saw a t-shirt that had on the back Jack Nicholson's face that I'd seen here and there of him the the here's Johnny moment Mm -hmm. where he's like peeking through and he's unshaven and he's like crazy 
And I'd seen Witches of Eastwick and I'd seen some stuff with Jack Nicholson that wasn't the Joker, but I hadn't seen The Shining yet, but I wanted that shirt. And sort of overlaid on that image was, all work and no play makes Jack and all boy, all work and no play. Which I didn't know if it was from the movie or just something that the shirt company added, you know. Right. I'd wear it from time to time. One day in the afternoon, like on the, the, on the Saturday afternoon million dollar movie, they showed The Shining edited for television. Then I wore that shirt that Monday because I was like, yeah, I'm going to just like that. Like that was my first seeing of The Shining was that edited for Saturday afternoon version. Mm -hmm. So I wore my Shining shirt now that I had some context. And so a lot of people came up to me that day and they were like, hey, I I saw that movie on on the the afternoon movie. And I was like, yeah, right. Isn't it crazy? And then years after high school, a few years after high school, I ran into like a, a girl who sat behind me in like German class and said my shirt used to scare her. Because, like, it'd just be Jack Nicholson. Because you had a crazy face on your shirt. Looking at her from yeah. my back. Now, the Ridley School system now has a uniform that all the kids have to wear. Like khakis and a, and a polo. You dodged a bullet of there. Of the school colors. You got to wear your crazy shirt. But, yeah, at the time, you could uh, you could get good and freaked when the oddball kid sitting in front of you <laughs> is wearing his, what I now know is a Jack Torrance shirt. Side, side note. Mm-hmm. I took that image out of, like, a coffee table book. And when my dad was replacing the medicine cabinet in our bathroom, I stuck it on the wall. So someday someone's going to take down that medicine cabinet and have quite a fright. Oh, boy. How do you like it? (laughs) But yes, she finds the all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy written over and over again, typed. And one of the best visual parts of that scene, of that moment, and it's a great moment, is the typos. Because especially in this day and age, and the further we go, technologically, the less impressive it is to have one phrase over and over because you can just hit copy and paste and then it's paste, 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 you know. But to see that every now and then a letter would be capitalized that wouldn't normally be or there'd be like missing a letter or... It lets you know they didn't just photocopy Yeah, a photocopy. one page over sure. and over again because they could have done that then. Or carbon paper. I know that they actually got a secretary to do like 500 pages and every page that you saw would get kind of wrinkled as she pulled it out of the stack, so that there had to be more pages for different takes. Ugh. And as we know, Kubrick, if has a legacy, it's a lot of takes. Yes. Print that, let's move on. Don't you want a second take for protection? What's to protect? It was perfect. So yeah, the typos just drove home that someone had to sit here and type out every letter of this crazy manuscript. And you got to do a little backdating in your head that says, as long as he's been typing, and he's been typing for a while... He's been crazy the whole time, which that's probably one of the biggest differences between the book and the Kubrick movie. Mm -hmm. It's the going crazy versus crazy from jump. Right. And when it all wraps up and with the conversation with Grady, one of the differences is you've always been the caretaker. Mm -hmm. I should know, sir. I've always been here. Another addition, one of the more iconic moments, is when it pushes into the, you know, he's frozen, they've left the hotel, the camera just kind of wanders the hallways of the overlook, and pushes in on one of many photographs on the wall that they've probably walked past several times, and then pushes in, pushes in, and it's Jack Torrance at a party that says, Fourth of July ball, 1921. Mm -hmm. He's... It's still up for interpretation. It is. 
Um, you want to talk about Wendy? Yeah, sure. Wendy in the book is a stronger character. And I think, therefore, in, in the movie's scarier moments, it would have been less scary in the Kubrick Shining to have, like, a strong, strong-willed woman up against Jack Torrance. I think there's a tendency in modern criticism of the 1980 Shelley Duvall, Wendy, and it never occurred to me growing up watching this movie. I always just thought, like, yeah, she's terrified. I would be, too. But it seems like there's this I've, filter I've put on it. It's like a dish rag. Yes. And such a weak woman and, and just, like, abominably difficult to watch. And she was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Actress when the movie came out. Really? Yes. Which is something I did not know. And I don't know why it surprises me, considering we've learned this about things like movies like Halloween and lots of movies this has happened mm. to where when it first comes out... Not really has that much respect, and then the years go by. Well, like for us, I mean, for me, I don't know about you, for me, it was already iconic. For a movie whose trailer featured nothing but the blood elevator, it's now iconic. Mm -hmm. Like all the surprises are on t shirts. <laughs> but a lot of people went from the book to the movie or from Kubrick's past career to now his latest effort. And so the movie was being compared to like 2001 for example, mm -hmm. and or the book, mm -hmm. which it was different from, and it wasn't really judged on its own merits, Right, I think. So, it, yeah, critically, it wasn't received as well as we think it should have been. Right, because it's so iconic now. I go back and forth between, you know, because I... Shelley Duvall was my first introduction. I mean, the, the movie, the 80 movie was my first introduction to The Shining. I didn't read the book until a few years ago. And Wendy, apart from, like, Shelley Duvall is kind of an interesting-looking person. and She's physically very thin. Yeah. And it looks like a stiff breeze could just kind of knock her over. She's olive oil. <laughs> She's olive oil. She's got a rather shaky voice. And they don't dress her as, like, a sexy woman. Like, Rebecca De Mornay's in, like, 90s, and she's, well, in, like... in one scene in particular. Uh-huh. Just, just to illustrate how far gone Torrance is for the hotel. He doesn't even want to have sex with that gorgeous thing. Right. What the hell? But, yeah, and, and so I do find it interesting, and I wonder if that viewing of Wendy as, like, this shrill, like, awful, insufferable woman comes from... I mean, I've heard a lot of real abusive language about how bad the character she is in the Kubrick film lately. and But I, I wonder if some of that comes from just a modern audience watching her now and she's defending her husband, even that, if, though we hurt their kid. And I'm like, but times were a little different. Like, yeah. I'm not well, saying it's excusable. Way, here's how times were a little different. She went on a private tour of the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, Torrance didn't get a tour of the kitchen. Right. Well, let me show Wendy the kitchen because yeah. she's going to be the one who's cooking. Exactly. By yeah. a male cook, so it's not completely... You know, but, yeah, that's what happened there. <laughs> Don't let it get you down, Mrs. Torrance. It's big, but it still ain't nothing but a kitchen. And a lot of this stuff you'll never have to touch. I wouldn't know what to do with it if I did. <laughs> and it gives you somewhere to go as a character, by the way, if you start just, uh, I mean, when we meet her, okay, she's smoking, and we know, you know she's smoking on the kid. That was okay at the time. But what we got to see was nervous smoking. The ash on her cigarette when she's talking to the doctor that comes to her home, when she like relays the story of her son getting hurt, that ash just keeps growing. Yep. And that, that's like the sign that of always like drove me crazy. someone very on edge. This is just armchair psychology, but often people who get involved with alcoholics had like an alcoholic father themselves. Right. right. 
or some kind of bad relationship with a parent, which in the book, doesn't Wendy have like this really strained relationship with her mom? With, with her mom. Yeah. She's a woman who can be stepped on, who has been stepped on. And I tried to sort of cast in my head if they had gone the, like the book, like Stephen King has said, someone who like nine years ago was a cheerleader. Yeah. That is now in this marriage. And has no real experience in the world. Yeah. So picture, I don't think I'm too far off the mark with this one. Picture 1980 Candace Bergen as Wendy Torrance. And it would have still been scary because it's The Shining. Yeah. But I wouldn't have been as afraid for her, mm -hmm. you know, when she's locked herself in she the bathroom. She seems so vulnerable. Yeah. When, yeah. when she's, she's got a knife. More often than not, she's the one with the weapon. But it looks like it's just going to fall out of her hand at any moment. Mm-hmm. I would think that if it was, you know, Candy Bergen, circa 1980, locking him in the pantry, I'd just say, well, movie done. Yeah. And a lot of people talk about Daley Kubrick and his misogynistic tendencies when it comes to female characters, and I don't have the body of knowledge to really speak to that, but you do hear a lot about him abusing her verbally on set and to get the performance purposely out of her. making other people isolate her and all of that. Like, look, I'm not saying that all's well that ends well necessarily however it does appear as though it were i mean i think it's a really incredible performance yeah on her part well in interviews she seems to take the attitude of well, that's what it took to get that performance out of me yeah she said i so, wouldn't trade it for the world but i wouldn't want to go through it again <laughs> sure she is such an interesting change like a such a drastic change from the book to the kubrick film she's just almost not the same character yes I'm just going to go and talk to Daddy for a few minutes. And I'll be right back. Now, I want you to just stay here and watch your cartoons, okay? Okay, Danny? Danny in every version has had a bad haircut. I gotta say, I'm not a fan of either Danny actor. Well, okay. So going from the book to, let's say, the Kubrick movie, there's far more importance placed on the parents. When in the book, a lot of the focus was on Danny. Mm -hmm. And the hotel wants Danny. They're just using the dad to get to Danny. When you're making a movie of it, they haven't made a five, six-year-old actor good enough to carry that kind of film i think you're right that's like, the problem you could make the little rascals <laughs> yeah with them that might come out okay Ooh. please don't hurt mr spook okay how old was the guy the kid, the kid who played danny also named danny mm -hmm. i don't know how old i he think he was, was five as well well six by the time the movie ended sure. because it took yeah. a year yeah which I think he was pretty young. They yeah. filmed in sequence, and good thing, because I think he got taller as the movie went on. So if you're going to make a movie out of The Shining, you have to take focus off of Danny. Which is kind of sad. And which, put but it on the adult. Thankfully, if you're a fan of Danny and you want more Danny, you got more Danny in, what was it, 2013 when Dr. Sleep came out? And Dr. Sleep, which I haven't read, and so you can help me out here, because I read the blurbs for Dr. Sleep. Mm-hmm. So then I read The Shining, believing that if not then, then later, the Tony character, the little boy who lives in his mouth, was thought to be maybe just Danny's way of dealing with his psychic abilities. But then they reveal that 
His middle name is Anthony. They described Tony at one point as being like an older boy with hair like Danny's. <laughs> yeah. In the miniseries, the character that they cast as Tony, later they go forward to uh, his high school graduation and he's being played by the same actor. Yeah. So now you know that like somehow... Tony is Tony, Danny from the future, basically. His future self. A projected version of the future. Or now you get to Dr. Sleep. I understand that we learn that Tony is messages being sent from a future version of Danny back to Danny. Sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. So Tony's always been Danny in one form or another. Apparently that creepy ass voice was totally little Danny Lloyd's invention. Yeah. The Tony voice. That's Ooh. what I'd heard also. I, I always assume they like brought in a woman or something, you know, like in The Exorcist. Yeah. I find it really almost absurd what they did in the miniseries where they have him like floating in front of him. Where Tony, Tony. floats in front of yeah. Danny. I mean, yeah. It's like just because you can doesn't mean you should. With much of the CGI in that film and effects that they do. And they CGI'd the... Was it CGI? The hedges? Yeah. Well, there's a couple shots of that. Initially, it's just funny camera work where the hedges just get closer. it looks like they're, a, yeah. A big difference. There was no maze in the original book, but there was these hedge animals that would eventually just start prowling like they were real lions and giant dogs. Mm -hmm. It was outside of their abilities to make it look good in the 80s version. Plus, the maze was a good metaphor. Yeah. So they went with it. And the big maze is iconic maze. again. Like now there's is, so yeah. many things that just became iconic. And I wonder if they hadn't gone to because you know they were in England, Jim Henson's creature shop, and tasked him with hedge lions. I, I bet he could have pulled it off. Ooh, that would be a very different feeling movie. I think. Good thing the lion learned to sing. One of the top like three things I think about is I think about that maze and like Jack That's getting true. frozen to death in that maze. maze. So. I mean, I just, I can't actually fathom. I guess just technically, I think it could have been done. Right. And I think the man to do it was Mr. Jim Henson. Yes. And they certainly had the money. They had a lot of money. And apparently he was coming off of a financial not success with Barry Lyndon. Right. And a critical not success. Which all the stuff I've heard says that Kubrick, after Barry Lyndon, was feeling the need to do something commercially viable and successful. And so he was hunting around for the right project. Yeah. As the story goes that the secretary of Kubrick told Stephen King. And it's a fun story. Is that he just had a, like a stack of horror novels and that she would hear every so many minutes just like, whoop, boom. And it was Kubrick throwing it against the wall. Right. Like rejecting it. And then several hours went by and she didn't hear a whoop, boom. So she checked on him and he was reading The Shining. And he's like, I've got it. Yeah. This is it. This will be my next project. I like better than in the book that when Dick Halloran, Halloran? I think I've heard people say Halloran and Halloran. Okay. I like to say Halloran. Has to talk with Danny that he does it over a bowl of ice cream and not in his car. You know? Yeah. Works way better. Yeah. I can remember when I was a little boy. My grandmother and I could hold conversations entirely without ever opening our mouths. She called it shining. And for a long time, I thought it was just the two of us that had to shine to us. Just like you probably thought you was the only one. I mean, in a word, great. 
Um, Who's Scatman Crothers? Scatman Crothers. Oh, yeah. As Halloran. I was introduced to Scatman Crothers, along with many other things, in the Twilight Zone, the movie. Who was he in that? In the Steven Spielberg directed segment of Kick the Can. <gasps> he was the guy who came oh, to the old age home. My God, you're blowing my mind. I forgot. I will. That is Scatman Crothers. Walk along a fence, kind of knock it into it, and I'll just go. Ain't no use just sitting around moping, sitting around moping. Uh, as as he does, he's oh. the man with the ability to turn people young and presumably yeah. turn himself young, but chooses not to, and instead seems to travel around demonstrating to different old age homes to appreciate where they are in life right now by showing them what it's like to be young again yeah. for, for a night. Why are you sitting around moping, sitting around moping? Just listen to me, I'm sure that you will agree. Age means nothing cause it's beautifully So I was already used to him as a magic man. Yeah. Now, in the years that have followed, between Green Mile and The Legend of Bagger Vance, there became the magical Negro. Oh, I mean, that's a stereotype that's gone on well before that and continued well since. Yes. Including... And, and really, the, the, the magical minority, because it's not just black people. I think it's also, you've got Native Americans, anyone who's brown who comes to teach the white people. You know, it's 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 problematic. Yeah. That said, I'm glad you mentioned it, because it, it is worth... That said, Scatman Crothers... Pure magic. <laughs> pure magic. Um, yeah. Has, had reached a point in his bald old age where if he shows up and says, like, I can read your mind... Then you're like, he can read my mind. Yeah. And if he's like, if you kick this can, I'll make you young. You're like, then give me that can and yeah. I will kick it. Yes. So he found a great late career niche. He was recommended by Nicholson, who had right. worked with him before. And had the most takes in the movie of what I don't even think had dialogue. I think it was just looking at Danny during the awesome ice cream eating mm -hmm. scene where he breaks it down. Speaking to a child, but also speaking to a, like the audience. And it's not what he says, it's also what he doesn't say. Like, that he is afraid of room 237. Right. Ain't nothing in room 237. Yeah, he's But you don't have any reason to go in there anyway. He's yeah. talking to a child who can read his mind, right? Yeah. Like Right, so you can't, there's no fooling. Yeah, you yeah. have to be straightforward, but also don't scare the kid. Right. Like, it's... I read oh, but that, 148 takes. I read well. I read that, and I don't know how true this is. You know, there's a lot of urban legend and like tall stories, but that the next film he worked on, he like cried tears of relief after like one. It was a Clint Eastwood movie or something, I think. I think it might have been a, a Bronco Belly. And at the end of like his first day of shooting, I guess Eastwood was like known for he's, one he's, and done, yeah. right? And so he's like, oh my god. <laughs> We're done with the scene? Because Kubrick had tortured him so much. What about room 237? So room 237, not the documentary, the actual room. Ooh, yeah. Which was room 217. Yes. In the book, the documentary says that the reason it was changed is because like the 
not the Stanley, but the Timberline Lodge. The Timberline that they use the exteriors for the exterior. Then there's a, a hotel in Yosemite that they used that they duplicated for the interior. Right. There's like three different hotels in. And then there's in this. the Stanley, which they used for the miniseries and was the original inspiration. Somebody said like it doesn't have a room two seventeen, so. I figure I'm not going to read into that any more than, well, there's also two other hotels in question. Right. It could have been one also, of them. Also, I've heard that's total bunk, and they actually do have a room 217, and it's it's a whole thing. Easy yeah. enough. Most theories surrounding this movie, you can find someone who's like, nah, no, I looked into it. That's bullshit. <laughs> it's like, you, you pull out oh, the string and it just kind of unravels. Sure. But it's fun that, that all that stuff, you know, it, it's kind of hard to know who's telling the truth. Mm. Or where that line blurs, which is fun. But... Room 237, it holds its own power. It looks, if you're going past it on your big wheel, it looks just like every other room, but you know that it's not. I guess in, in the book and the miniseries, he gets the pass key. Mm-hmm. But in the Kubrick, he's just sitting there playing with his toy cars and a ball, the same like ball that he was that his dad was throwing against the wall, just kind of like rolls up to him from who knows where because he's in this long hallway all by himself. And he looks up, and the door has been, like, opened. And has, mm-hmm. like, a key in the lock. Mm-hmm. And he's curious Oof. and goes in. In the book, we find out what happens. In the miniseries, same thing. We follow Danny into room 217 and see what he sees, which is the lawyer's wife who had killed herself in there. Something that I got from the book is a bigger identity of the woman in the bathtub. Mm. And that was, I don't think she got a name, but she was referred to as the lawyer's wife. Mm. It was the wife of a hotshot lawyer who shacked up with a younger man. The younger man left her, and then she took her life in the bathtub, I suppose. Uh, Definitely in room 217, Mm. later known as room 237. And there was, like, this maid that Halloran knew that was scared to go in there because, like, after the suicide, she'd seen something in mm-hmm. there. And she had a bit of the shine to her. And so Halloran was, like, giving that room a wide berth. We never know the backstory, which is that much scarier to me. I never even thought about the woman in the room as being, in the Kubrick version, as being specific to that room as ever even having been anybody. I pictured it as, like, the room just like in that, the oh, belt. Oh, sure. That, like, Me too. The room just manifests first a beautiful woman and then the old decomposing yes. woman. And neither of them were ever anybody like Grady. It's just like a lure for Jack and then a scary thing. For the yeah. room to just unbalance him. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, and, and <laughs> I guess uh, Samuel Jackson in a... Uh, 1408? In 1408 was just like, some rooms are just evil. mm and I picture 237 as being like, this home has many hearts. That like, it's like the heart of the building. And yeah, something bad probably did happen there that stays behind like when someone burns the toast. Right. But I never really thought it was a specific woman. I guess when I got old enough to have thoughts that weren't 
mind-numbing, blinding terror about it. I think I felt the same way you're describing, where I never thought, like, oh, that must have been some woman who killed herself. I agree. I thought it was just some evil manifestation. Just an evil room. By the way, as a child, I remember walking in the room when... I don't think it was just my parents. I think they had a couple, like, maybe aunts and uncles or something over. And I walked into the room while they were watching that scene with Jack and the woman. And it is one of my most vivid... I'm not sure I can even trust that who was watching it when I walked in, but I know that I happened to walk in during that part. And there aren't very many things that scared me as much as a kid. And I don't remember how old I was, but that woman, that that raspy cackle, that naked decomposing right. butt, the <laughs> yeah. drippy, like t- the, the juxtaposition of like, oh, I'm seeing a naked woman. Oh, breasts. Wow. Oh, oh, no, no. Like just all of the confusing feelings and then the terrifying feelings. And I mean, I still find it incredibly hard to watch that scene today. It's so, so scary. When you don't know it's coming and when you know it's coming, it's still scary. Yes. The naked young woman was an edition of the Kubrick version. In the book, Danny encounters the woman in the tub (laughs) and he is still working on the belief that nothing there is real. Nothing there can hurt him. Like but pictures his, in a book. Like pictures in a book. But The Shining has kind of woken the hotel up and it's a little more powerful than Mr. Halloran mm. knows. So he's like got his hand on the doorknob. He's like, it can't hurt me. It can't hurt me. It's not here. It's not here. Which has worked already. And then it grabs him. Oh. And the chapter ends. <laughs> in the miniseries, the boy gets out of the room and he, like us, thinks like, well, once you're out of the room, it's like base and tag. Phew. You're fine. He's like, well, that was close. And then Yoink. she just reaches out. You see like these green decomposing hands come out of the room and just lift him off his feet. Boom. I don't know if they cut to commercial there. They did. They, it's oh. one of the few. There's like two moments in the miniseries that are like jump scares like that. And it that got me. I was like. Ehh. Yeah. And then uh, Steven Weber goes back and unlike Nicholson. Sees no naked women. Right. Just. Does he see her? Oh, he sees her. He sees her. Okay, yeah. Well, first he finds, like, lipstick. Because his thing is someone, like, kissed the boy Mm -hmm. with lipstick. Mm -hmm. And that gets him off the hook. Because otherwise he'd be the main suspect. Which, in the Kubrick version, it's all downhill after he goes into room 237. That just sets off the chain of events. Yeah. The accusation that leads to the imaginary drinking that leads to... Her wanting to leave the hotel that leads to more imaginary drinking that leads to <sighs> so on and all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember whether, I, I guess he just like leaves the room, just runs out of the room, same as Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What can you do? Yeah. yeah. First, when he's stealing away with the lipstick, then he hears a noise, he walks back in there, he sees like a shadow of a woman behind the curtain and then he just runs so and he, slams the door. Checks first time, no one in the tub. Yeah. And then it's like, hey, that wasn't there before. Yeah. And in the book, they do a lot with like, oh, there's no woman in the tub. And there's no water in the tub. Then why is the bath mat wet? Yeah. And just reading, you're like, why is the bath mat wet? (laughs) On a side note, I I do want to say I came across a lot of real guff when it came to Steven Weber's performance. Like a lot of people being really harshly critical. A lot of people are used to him doing comedy. Yes, and I understand that. I, too, watched Wings. But how incredibly difficult to fill 
Jack Nicholson's shoes fall in those footsteps. They went to Gary Sinise and he was like, uh, I'm not going to try to out Nicholson. Right. Nicholson. No one wanted to do it. And he, I think, wanted to kind of stretch himself and do something, show that he was capable of something else besides the comedy. And I don't think it's like completely a wonderful slash flawless performance. But there are a lot of moments where I totally buy him as like nice, caring, sweet dad. I think he does the going crazy thing pretty when he's top tier crazy pretty well. And I think there and you can tell. And it's a transition tell, and it's a back and forth. Yes. And you can tell how hard they work to try to achieve this balance. And he's fighting with himself to stuff down his anger and his issues and his crazy. And then he comes out again after acting out and he's like, I'm so sorry. I love you. It's incredibly difficult, I think, for him to go back and forth. So... Any inconsistencies or, like, unevenness, I think it's just a product of them really trying to do something different with that character, i.e. go back to basics Mm -hmm. and give the audience what the Jack Torrance who's in the novel. I think the problem with that, as is the problem with a lot of King adaptations, is... You get so much inner monologue, like you said, mm-hmm. in his books. You you Which learn so much about the characters. When he comes out of the pantry mm-hmm. in the book, you don't get any more internal monologue out of Torrance. And I think the internal, I think the... And th- by then he's all hotel. Right. Or enough hotel. I think the internal monologues in Stephen King's novels help him create these outrageously relatable characters. And I've heard... It said, and I'm not sure who said it, I think it was a critic right around the time when the movie came out, that Kubrick thinks too much and feels too little, and King feels too much and thinks too little. And I I had this revelation when I read that. I was like, oh my God, that's why I love Stephen King novels so much. It's because he feels so deeply and he creates these characters that you really care about. And the plot may or may not end up being super satisfying or work super well. But he writes great characters, and it's very hard to translate that kind of depth of character on screen when you don't have that tool of giving us his every thought for, you know, a certain amount of time. And let's say that Kubrick was perfectionist enough to have so many takes that allowed Nicholson to give his performance and then try new things and get bigger and bigger. And Duvall to get more frazzled and more (laughs) frazzled. And putting them together, well, the results speak for themselves. Yeah. Okay. I always brush my teeth before I report back in for work. Why? Consideration for my co-workers. It's grueling enough without a face full of lamb cutlets. I had watched the little behind the scenes that like Vivian Kubrick or whatever her his his wife. No, this is his daughter. Oh, is it his daughter? Who was like 17, 18 years old. Really? Yeah. Which, by the way, when I learned that, like the opening of it is Nicholson going like, ah, you're recording me. You look very cute in your red shirt. Oh, geez. (laughs) Well, so I I know I'd seen that footage before, but watching it this time, I picked up on a little factoid that I was like, oh my gosh, Marshall must love this, which Uh, is Nicholson saying that he's marking up his script. He's marking his lines. And he's like, you know, I I read once that this is how Karloff... He saw it. Oh. They did two movies together. Well, there you go. He said, I saw how Karloff marked his lines in his script, and I, I've always done it this yeah, way he, since. He would make these big check marks where his lines were in yeah. the script. And he's like, I picked this up from Karloff. It would have either been from The Raven, which comes with Comedy of Terrors if you purchase it. Nicholson was in The Raven as a young man. 
or the terror, which they did together. Your pardon, young sir. I was at my devotions. I did not hear you. I'm sorry, sir, but surely I made enough noise to awaken the dead. And that movie is a legendary train wreck. Ooh. Yeah. Forgive me for reviving painful memories. Um, do you know about the prologue and the epilogue entitled Before the Play and After the Play? I know that there was a scene afterwards that they filmed, like, in a hospital. Mm. And they said, like, your husband's body is missing. That is all movie associated. I'm referring specifically to the book. Oh, oh. In the book, it's, like, one year later, and they're at, like, a resort where Halloran's working. And he, like, got a cabin for Wendy and Danny. Right. And they're like, well, life's tough. There was a lot of insurance on Jack Torrance. Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. And now they're looking to the future. So that little epilogue you just described was only a small part of what King originally wrote. He wrote something a bit longer at the end of the book. Uh But the publisher, his publisher had him cut it. And then there was a very extended prologue to the novel that was also sliced all the way out. Okay. Which was published later in a collection of short stories. I wasn't able to track it down, like track down the actual book, but some enterprising chap had transcribed a lot of the prologue online just for fun, for so people could read it. So it wasn't all of it, but I read a good several pages of it. And it was set back in... Early 1900s, same kind of thing we're, you're talking... Actually, I think... The early days of the Overlook? The early days of the Overlook, but it's talking about some of the earlier... Like, the man who built the place and went into terrible debt. And then how he and his son became, like, the janitor slash caretakers. And this other man bought it from them. And what that man went through and how the place drove him crazy, too. And how none of the guests ever, like, came back for return visits, and they wouldn't say why. You know, people would always kind of come once and never come back again. And, like, it's a really fun... I'm like, ah, I have to hunt down the rest of it and read the whole thing, because I think it'll be worth reading, because I love that stuff. The really detailed background of, like... So we know The Shining and the story of Wendy and Danny and Jack, but, Establishing the Overlook as a character. Yes, I love it! I love it so much! This house has quite a long and colorful history. It was built on an ancient Indian burial ground and was the setting of satanic rituals, witch burnings, and five John Denver Christmas specials. People are kind of down on the scene where now that Wendy is finally seeing ghosts and, you know, great party, isn't it? That guy. Yes. She goes into the lounge and now there's like skeletons in suits. And, like, cobwebs everywhere. And people are like, that's kind of chintzy. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a hokey, definitely. Yes, yes. But if you follow the theory that it's all in their heads, that they're just going crazy, and maybe the ghosts aren't really ghosts, but really their own personal deeds manifested, Jack's a writer. He's got a more rich writer's imagination. <laughs> so far, we've been seeing the things that he sees. Wendy, she's a little more pedestrian. She likes her books. When she projects with her not-as-rich imagination, it just kind of looks like a bunch of spook house skeletons A little hokum. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. That's a fun thought. Right? I love that. All that does is defends the skeletons <laughs> by dumping on Wendy. Yeah. Sorry, Wendy. I always forget about those not-great skeletons. Yeah, like, we've seen some really great things, and we're about to see the blood elevator for, like, the fourth time. But still... Odd. Usually the blood gets off at the second floor. 
And then in between the two is just like, I'm Mr. Bones. I'm using the telephone. <laughs> I'm scary. Careful. There's cobwebs. <laughs> Believe me, if I walked into, I mean, I've set a skeleton on a toilet and you scream. Yes, I would pee my pants. So if I walked. Easy in, for us to laugh about. Yeah, into a room that previously held zero skeletons and now holds like a dozen. <laughs> no matter how hokey. I'd be upset. Be, yeah. Yeah. So sure. there's that. But compared to the rest of the And movie. then I was actually watching the commentary on The Shining and then the commentary, they were like, well, thanks for joining us. And they sort of sign off and then I signed off by immediately falling asleep mm -hmm. while the credits were running and then about a minute later I was like <clears throat> but I came to the music ends that like midnight and the stars and you I'd never followed these credits all the way to the end because afterwards it's just like the sounds of like dinner plates what that they stick on for like the last minute of the credits. Ooh, creepy. And so I kind of regained consciousness. It was like two in the morning to those sounds. Oh my goodness. So uh, I guess ideal watching, pay attention to the whole movie. There's a lot to see. They really fill the frame. After the credits start, doze off. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up towards the end of the credits and be disoriented And then enough. be up for another hour because you can't get back to sleep. Because you're like, G -g -g ghosts Yeah. <laughs> That's So in, in a movie that I have picked apart and analyzed and analyzed the analyzations and, you know, I've really beat this one to the ground and I'm not the only one. It was nice to get a genuine fright. Yes. Out of it. A real uneasy feeling. <sighs> just in time for it to end. And then like my... Just, just me in the room. Did it. I, I hope we did it justice. Until it's like, I'll do that thing, but first I have to just get that Shining episode out. Would you say that this is sort of like made you feel a little crazy? At the end of the day, yeah. Yeah, me too. It was a, a big undertaking and not a movie that's taken casually by a lot of its fans. So it's like we had to really put in the time on this one. Mm -hmm. It's such a horror staple. It's a cornerstone. Yeah. I think both King in his own way and Kubrick in his own way set out to make what they consider to be maybe not necessarily ultimate horror, but a real just block of, how do I describe it? I like ultimate horror. Okay. I think that you were right. I think that encompasses, it doesn't mean pure okay. every moment is horror. It they, means, they you know, well-crafted Set out to do the ultimate specimen. horror. They, set, they both set out to do an ultimate horror. Yes. And especially at that point in their careers. King kicking it up a notch and sort of trying to get himself from some paperback into hardcover and all that that means. And Kubrick 
trying to bring it, I'll just say, down a notch from the lofty Barry Lyndon to a more accessible, marketable uh, genre mm -hmm. of horror. And I guess the two artists kind of met in the middle. Yeah. And gave us The Shining. And I think arguably, I mean, this is, for many people, the main thing they think of when they think of Kubrick. I mean, I know there's also Clockwork Orange 2001, but The Shining, I mean, is the, the Shining could potentially be the most iconic thing. It's the first thing iconic? that comes to a lot of people's minds when they think about yes. Kubrick. Title, I think, 2001. And then growing up, you know, he only made a movie like once a decade. Full Metal Jacket was coming to cable mm. when I was just sort of learning different directors having styles in the mm -hmm. first place. I guess it's kind of like, what's your Kubrick? Sure. Uh, for you, The Shining. As much as I love 2001, and I really do, and I like Clockwork Orange oh, yeah, a, lot in, a lot in high school, and I haven't watched it since then. I have no idea how I feel about it now. But yeah, The Shining for me, as much as I, I have to be honest, when I finally read the Stephen King novel, it's not, I wouldn't place it in my top five Stephen King novels, maybe not even top 10. I liked it just fine. I think it's great, but it didn't, I don't think I'll reread that one. So for me, I would say that for me, the yeah. Kubrick version is canon for me. That's like my favorite version over and above the book, which I can't believe I'm saying as much as I love Stephen King. No, sure. What uh, about you? I'm sure I will watch the Kubrick movie before I reread the book. Mm -hmm. Some of that's just a time commitment. Right. It's a difference between... A lot easier. Two hours versus, you know, three months. Yeah. But you know what? If I ever return to the book, enough time will have passed that I will be a different person, basically. Mm-hmm. My responsibilities will probably have shifted, and uh, I'll approach it from a new perspective. Well, the guy... The, I forget the guy's name, and it's terrible, and I apologize if he's listening, but the guy who runs the Stephen King cast, which is a podcast where he's gone through every single publication and adaptation from beginning to end with a few exceptions but he talks about that very thing you're you're talking about he's read the shining four or five times he says the first time he read it he was like 10 mm. um, he started really early and he identified really strongly with danny and he says is now he's gotten older and <laughs> the most recent time he read the shining he's like i'm older than jack torrance um, oh yeah yeah me too was in the novel and he's like and that kind of blew my mind and also he's like i'm starting to as torrance an adult was just sort of whatever age king was at the time sure and you get it, and, and in Salem's Lot, the writer in that was just whatever H. King was at the totally. time. Totally. But the host of the Stephen King cast talks about having a new perspective and identifying more with certain things about Jack as the older he gets. You know, Eventually you read it. Eventually he'll and... identify with Halloran. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wouldn't we all like to? I now am looking at, as I get older at like what kind of old man I'd like to be. Like I'm looking at like William Shatner. Oh. Now like, oh, there's an old man I'd like to be. Yeah. I better start now. <laughs> so I, it's like, I can't wait to be an energetic old man. Indeed. And wouldn't it be great to be like between Halrin and his character in Twilight Zone, the movie. I'm going to need some magic powers. Yeah. But you better get to work. I, I, I just want that sort of outlook on life he seems to possess in, mm -hmm. in these films. Mm -hmm. um, all right, Kat. We uh, can be reached by the good people who are listening. The best way I'd say is boysandghouls at gmail.com. Pretty direct way. But you can also find us on Facebook. You can find us on Pinterest. I have a lot of fun there. Cat takes care of our Instagram. And we're on Twitter. Boys and Ghouls at Twitter. Boys and Ghouls or Boys and Ghouls podcast for you know, the other stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, what's our Instagram? 
It's Boys and Ghouls podcast, but all you have to do is look for Boys and Ghouls. You don't have to type in the exact term. Yeah. The internet's good for that. Most Boys and Ghouls on the internet that comes up on a casual Google search will be us. It will. And join us next month. It was such a chore getting out The Shining. We have not discussed what we're doing next month. So who knows what it'll be. Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. And if any of you have uh, suggestions at any time for something you'd like to see covered or you want our take on something that maybe we didn't get to or just let us know what your take is get your uh, two cents out there even just if it's to an audience of marshall and cat go right ahead and uh well cat as always would you say well i would say well, i was gonna try to make some dumb joke okay dumb joke aside dumb joke aside beware the moon Okay. Be there.